new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, it's a wonderful day to be here podcasting. And we, again, we appreciate all of you for listening, for tuning in. Thanks so much. And thanks for also those who have uh, given towards the podcast. And we'll touch base with that near the end. So yeah, on today's episode, we have with us Tamsin Granger. And she is a touch therapist based in Edinburgh, Scotland and has worked in the area for 30 years. She specializes in shiatsu, a Japanese acupressure massage modality. In 2000, Tamsin opened the Shiatsu School Edinburgh, training professional and postgraduate practitioners and beginners. She was the chair and a board member for the Shiatsu Society in the UK and is a member of the Complementary and Natural Healthcare Council in the UK. Additionally, she teaches shiatsu internationally. And she just released her first book, Working with Death and Loss in Shiatsu Practice, a Guide to Holistic Bodywork in Palliative Care. Excellent. Tamsin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. And so when I first saw your bio, I was really interested in the touch therapy. Is Shiatsu the only one or are there other ones that are classified under touch therapy? That I do or that or that across do, the yeah. world? I I just do shiatsu. Many of my colleagues do a range of different practices, but shiatsu for me is really huge and broad and it keeps on keeping me interested. So shiatsu is the one that I do. Okay. So can you explain maybe what it is for listeners who don't know or have never experienced it and maybe the philosophy behind it? Sure. Yes. So it originates in Japan and has a philosophy that really takes from ancient Chinese practice as well. So we call it an East Asian bodywork. You're right to um, ask about the philosophy because the philosophy behind it is really important. In those days, um, many centuries ago, when people first starting started to, to think about how to benefit people from touching, in a more organized way rather than a natural way. It was part and parcel of life. Thinking about medicine as we do nowadays in 2020, we often think of it as a separate practice. And within it, it has separate types, physiotherapy, surgery, general practice, ER, etc., but in those days, in China and in Japan, touch was part of life. It was something that everybody did. And in fact, it, it really came across to me um, when I first started teaching baby shiatsu because I was going around my local area uh, promoting my classes. And I went in and spoke to um, a gentleman that was running a shop and said, you know, maybe you or your grandchildren would like to learn this. And he looked at me very surprised and said, but I have always massaged my grandchildren. And so did my grandfather before him and my grandmother before her. So that really put me in my place and made me realize how intrinsic touch is to that society, those societies, even, even now. So the philosophy 
the is very important and the spiritual aspect of it is is entirely connected so it's not just about the body and about physical symptoms it's about feelings it's about thoughts and it's about our spiritual connection to whatever you like to call it it could be god it could be the universe it could be the cosmos so that's the sort of really broad background to shiatsu. What I actually practice is sometimes called acupressure, sometimes called acupuncture without the needles. And that gives you a clue. Where an acupuncturist puts needles in is where I touch with my hands. And the word shiatsu, she is Japanese for thumb or fingers. And atsu is Japanese for pressure. So it's very simply touching with the hands with some body pressure along the same meridian lines that an acupuncturist might use needles. And then we add to that some stretches, some rotations, some holding, some very tactile techniques, which you may, if you don't know it, think, oh, that reminds me of Thai massage, for example. So it can be really physical, stretching and opening and motivating the chi, or it can be very, very quiet and still and holding for the people who are needing that. Thank you. That's, uh, I was just thinking in my head, it's kind of like, I guess, you know, you would need a great guide, a roadmap of the body to understand where to kind of touch someone it's it's i guess it's kind of like the difference between seeing a location on a map and then walking it with your feet whereas your fingers need to understand the human body in that sense right like because we all like for me i know nothing about it i just go sometimes i get a massage it seems like they're doing magic on my body you know it seems like they're just figuring out the areas that are tense but you guys know the human you know the common things that humans have in our bodies that all makes similar so you would see or feel when something is maybe out of alignment or something like that yeah that's a that's a that's a great description it it's 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 both ends of those things on the one hand anybody can do shiatsu you put your hands on somebody and if you really want to do them good and you really are able to sink yourself down into into your hands and into, we call it the hara, the, the center of us, the, the belly area to connect, then we all have the ability to just naturally respond to what we call the chi, the, the body energy. On the other end of the scale, if you want to be a registered practitioner in the UK, in the US, anywhere in the world, then yes, there's a, a, a minimum of a three-year training right from anatomy and physiology all the way through to exactly what you said, this map of places uh, and channels in the body. But the beauty of it is that anybody can do it to themselves or to the people they love in a really intuitive, easy, relaxed way. Um, so it, it's, it covers this wide spectrum. I'm really curious how you got into that because I said like in my life, I haven't really come into contact with anyone with that. I haven't really looked looked it up personally. So in the culture, it's not really um, put up, put on like a pedestal. So how did you first come? Because I'm guessing it was been now. So it was like what thirty years ago, maybe more, that you maybe sort of learned about it. So can you 
talk to us about that and how you you know first came about it to learning about it and then why you decided to actually train in it thank you yes I was a dancer. I had trained as a dancer and been working as a dancer and as a community dance worker. And I was in my early 20s, living on the border between England and Wales, a beautiful place called the Forest of Dean. And it was a very high pressure job. I was called an animateur of dance, somebody who animates people about dance. And um, when the job finished, I moved to Bristol, which is a little bit further southwest, and um, and was at a bit of a bit of a loss, bit of a sort of um, loose end. We say, you know, I didn't really know quite what to do with myself. And three separate people on three separate occasions said, "Oh, if you tried shiatsu, you might like shiatsu." And I had never heard it. I'd never heard of it. My parents you know, never introduced me to anything like this. We never had massage. I mean, it just didn't figure in my background at all. But after three people said it, I sort of thought, okay, I hear you. I hear you. I'll uh, I'll try this. And, and it was two things about receiving that really got me um, look, sort of linked into it, really. One was that the process of receiving it you lie on a futon which is like a soft mattress a sort of um you know like lots of people sleep on futons now that's that's what we use to give shiatsu on so I lay on the futon and she started doing her thing and it felt like I was being danced by her it was like she was moving my body around it was all smooth and flowing and I just loved it so that was the first thing and the second thing was that she said you know, do you have any health problems? And I said, well, yeah, I've had this thing that's been going on for years, but, um, you know, I've been told I've got to live with it for the rest of my life. So, yeah. And she said, oh, I think Shiatsu could help with that. Um, and I didn't believe her at all. But uh, within two sessions, that thing had pretty much disappeared. And so, yeah, so it was a bit of a miracle. It felt like it was a bit of a miracle. So that was how I got hooked into it. So you felt like you stumbled upon something quite amazing. I did. That's very interesting. And it's a great, interesting way to describe it, isn't it? Like a, like a dance, like uh, someone who's uh, doing an artistic performance on your body. <laughs> well, it seems like that when it's someone who's good at it. It definitely seems like that. I think that's the magic I was talking about, where like sometimes you get a massage and you're like, wow, this person knows exactly what to do. And uh, this is it, it does seem like a performance like definitely an art and I I think maybe that person treats it like an art which is a beautiful thing I mean dance is definitely like that you know with the rhythm and and, and the moment and and being taken with the music when you do uh go from the, go into that performance was it a little bit sad for you to know that you weren't able to get into dancing more or was this just like an exciting change for you that okay great I get something new I can I can go into uh, it was gradual. Um, I continued just to be a receiver, you know, just to just to have the massage for a couple of years. And then when I was uh, moving back to Scotland, um, the woman that was giving me shiatsu said, oh, I think you should learn to do it. And like it had never occurred to me because I was just quite happy to lie there and have somebody do it to me. But I enrolled in the course that she recommended and when I got to the first class, I just had a sort of 
a weird sensation really it just I remember thinking I remember it really clearly I put my hands on somebody and I just felt oh I can do this and the teacher was very encouraging it was a very relaxed atmosphere shiatsu classes are, are nice places to be you know they're very um very good for your self-esteem because there's, there's no judgment or anything. And it was really different from my dance training, which was very judgmental. And I really had to, you know, try to meet the standards which they had set for me. So it was a good experience. And when I got to the end of the foundation course, I sort of thought, oh, well, you know, why not just do the intermediate and so on to the advanced and it was very sort of relaxed. I didn't have any sense of, oh, I want to be a practitioner. And in fact, towards the end of my second year's training, they changed the rules and said they had to be three years and the teacher wasn't even offering a third year. So a group of us just organized our own third year. So, you know, it took quite a long time. It was, it was five years really before somebody said to me, I was still, you know, working very hard as the dance artist in residence for Edinburgh, starting up big big projects, running big festivals and so on. And um and somebody said, you know, you're you're qualified now. Why don't you start to practice? So it was a very gradual, probably over the next 10 years, I was doing both. But it got more and more frustrating having to switch from being this, you know, sort of person, the dancer, the dance teacher, the dance animator, to being the Shiatsu practitioner, which was quite a different way of being in the world and in the end I finally made that switch um, but it was really slow so and and it and another sort of little while later I realized that the dance had really fed into the shiatsu and so it didn't feel like I was leaving something behind it felt like I was developing does that make sense yeah no that makes a lot of sense and, and practically it makes a lot of sense because you're going from you know using your body to just healing the body you know, you're like dancing and now you get to feel out where all those strains and pulls and <laughs> those things come from, from dancing, mm. stretches in the body. Like, yeah, I'm sure you would have, that would add to it because you have a, a little bit of an understanding. Because I, I would imagine playing sports would lead into massage as well because you have an understanding of how the legs work, how the arms work, maybe certain muscles uh, in certain movements uh, take more strain than others. Really curious if you could just like share some of the the strength of what basically uh, shiatsu can do for someone that uh, like maybe what are some common things people go to shiatsu for? Yes, what it can do. You're right. Um, I started teaching really early on when I almost as soon as I became qualified because I think because I'd been teaching dance, therefore, it, it, you know, the teaching part of it didn't didn't sort of phase me too much. And I found that that what people wanted to do, which which shiatsu seems to be so good at is to get in touch with their own body they wanted to become what we would now call embodied because I think that people don't really want to be fixed by other people I think they want to understand why their bodies or their minds are not not being the way that they want them to be and and how they can make the changes that that's my understanding so I don't use the word healing very much because I don't feel that it's me that's doing the healing. So people will come to me and say, you know, initially more than anything, I just need to be more relaxed. So they think they, they have a sense that if they're stressed, they can't manage the world as well as they would like to. They can't manage the things that life throws at them. 
and they know they need to be more relaxed. They know they need to be de-stressed. And um, you only have to have about five minutes of shiatsu to realize that it works quite deep. We work on top of clothes. It's, we don't use oil on the skin in the way that massage does. And so there's this sense of, it's very strange, it's difficult to want to um, put it into words. It's like a penetration, a sense that the touch that we use is very gentle, doesn't hurt when you feel it coming you know, touching you, but you do feel that it goes very deep into you. And that, that's because we're working with the chi system and not with just the blood or the lymph or the physical aspects of somebody. So the main reason why people come, we, we did a, a huge uh, research project a while ago across three separate countries um, asking why people came, what do they get out of it? Did they go back? Did they have any response? Um, and the the main things were for stress, for sports injuries, for joint and muscular problems, and for back pain. Um, so those were the those were the main reasons why people were using are using shiatsu, and all of them went back. I mean, I guess they were the people that that uh, that took part in the study, but they all went back for more than one session, kept coming back. And they all had a reaction. Almost everybody had a reaction. So, yeah, they all, you know, I think people find that it's very powerful. It's so interesting. Yeah, I want I've never tried it, but you're making me want to try it. The uh, my my one question, because I know you have had some loss in your life. I was wondering, did you ever use this modality for yourself when it came to your own your own grief? Yes, I did. And I, and I continue to, actually, because I don't think grief really goes away. It changes, doesn't it? But it doesn't necessarily go away. And there are always sort of new things that come up. Um, but yes, I did, especially when I had, well, when I was with my, my father sitting at his bedside, he, he was in the hospice with dying of cancer. And so um, I sat through the night with him the night before he died and um, he was not really conscious. I didn't have a conversation with him. Um, he was quite far on in the illness. And so I needed, I couldn't sleep and I wanted anyway to be with him um, and to be alert. I wanted to accompany him if possible. And um, and so I used, the, I used my shiatsu, yes, to, as I said before, really, just to sort of bring myself into my body. I find that both I and my clients, um, that grief can sort of really, really pull us away from the body, can really, um, the distress. And I remember, you know, the sort of how easy it was to jump ahead to the future, what it would be like without him, how I would cope without him, how would mum be. And so the touch really brought me back into my body. You know, I was able to, to, to either use sometimes specific things like specific points so that if I felt short of breath, then I knew there were points I could use which would help me take a deeper breath. Sometimes it was more general, like a sort of comforting, really, like a squeezing or a holding like a lot of people are using now in these sort of COVID days when they're on their own. So, yeah. And then later on when I had um, miscarriage after miscarriage, I felt so alone. And so I was really the only person initially who could comfort me. So I, I fell back on my shiatsu to do that. Yeah. Keep me in my body. Keep me, keep me going. 
Do you prefer doing it yourself or do you have colleagues that you'd go to to actually get it done? I would always go to a colleague if I could um, because there is, you know, a whole other level of relaxation when you're just sinking into the mat and knowing that this other person is is there to take care of you and to alert you to what you could do can focus on you know if you touch a part of the body that you're you haven't really thought about or that you haven't really sort of made connection with if the practitioner touches that body part then then the mind goes there my mind my awareness goes there and then it's like oh okay yes I can spread my chi out into my ankles or into my into my you know lower back or and that somehow makes me feel more whole more better balanced and shiatsu is very much about balance trying to trying to find balance so if i had the option i would always i would always go to somebody else but i don't have that option on a day-to-day basis and so i do shiatsu on myself in between hey that's good but i like what you're saying and how when you when someone touches a certain point of the body you can bring awareness there because i know uh, there was a long time i i never did massage and then i I had back issues and then I, I went and then I started to realize that I didn't know much. I didn't have a lot of self-awareness of the tension in my body until they started working on it. And now I have so much more awareness of what's actually tense and what's not. Like before, everything was just like, oh, it is what it is, right? But yeah. now it's like you have more conscious <laughs> awareness of, wait, this isn't supposed to be like that or yeah. this is actually. Well, yeah, it's like driving a car to failure. It's like you don't know what's wrong. You just it just run it till it breaks down. <laughs> But uh, once you once you have uh, awareness, you can say, "Oh wait, oh the oil light's been on." And okay, all right, I get it. Now I'm gonna change the oil. Tires seem a little low. No, that's totally what it was. Uh, I think for for me, it was, I'm sure it's like that for a lot of new people who have had that experience for the first time. It's just you know someone who knows how to talk to you, how to talk to you about your body, and then you can go from there and build a plan for yourself. And then now I know. You know, when my body is starting to kind of get need in service, uh, need need a little bit more than the usual touch. You know, it, it's wearing down a little bit. You know, the 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 pain. Um, there's a pain in the spot that continues, and those are just signs for me to either you know ease the actual mental stress in my life or ease the physical stress or something that's going on that's causing this pain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've probably heard lots of people, maybe you even talk yourself about like the shadow side or the or the shadow parts of ourselves. I mean, however good we are at living and and looking after ourselves, because we're always developing and changing, coming across new people, new ideas there's always bits which are in the shadow and bits which are in the light. You know, we would call it yin and yang, but, and it's so helpful to have somebody there, as you say, just to go, hey, did you think about turning this light on when it's dark? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I totally totally get what you're saying. It's it's so true. And I think it's also, you know, to talk about, at the same time, it's very similar to yoga, where yoga, nobody really understood it too much 30 years, 40 years ago. Now people are understanding it more and people call yoga, what does they say? It's the massage of exercise or something. I don't know. It's how to give yourself a massage, uh, essentially, is people who have value coming out of yoga. 
which is just it's stretching their body in new ways that they've never really felt or stretched before. Like, you know, if you work, let's just think about my dad working, you know, 30 years at one job, like, you know, walking the same way and move his body in the, the same way. Like I never saw the man stretch. Like it's, it's just like I never saw him like, you know, take the time out to like move his body in a different way. You know, bodies are amazing and that they'll get used to operating in a certain way. But I think when it comes down to yoga and massage, that's trying to stretch your body in a different way and show you that, hey, your body needs something. But or this is just just the roadmap of your body. This is what it is after, you know, 20 X amount of years, 30 years of continued use. This is what it looks like now. Sure, that's that's right. I mean, I think, you know, if we go back to the days when we were working the land and looking after the ho- our houses ourselves and didn't have machines to do things for us, we would have done a really wide range of movements. You know, we yeah. would have gone from side to side if we were cutting the grass, we'd have gone up and down if we were, you know, picking things from trees, we would have gone round, you know, from towards the back of us if we were um, looking to see what was coming behind us, etc. And uh, so I, I'm, you're absolutely right. You know, we would not normally be doing these repetitive things day in, day out, year in, year out. So, yeah, it's great for that. Absolutely great. And I think the difference between shiatsu and other forms of massage is that we, as I say, we, we work on this chi system. So there is this way of connecting with the organs. It's not just, you know, like if you have massage with oil, then generally the strokes are towards the heart because you're moving the blood into the heart to get the circulation moving, which is absolutely delicious, isn't it? Just to feel it. But when we're doing shiatsu, we're working on balancing the organs one with the other. So it's incredibly deep sort of work. It doesn't feel deep um, physically, but you can sense that it's deep. And that's why we have such a long training is because we, you know, that sort of touch, it's, there is something different about it um, from a, a traditional massage technique. So, yeah. I was thinking about just when people are grieving and they go for this, is there a lot of emotions that come out during a session? Because I can see that if you, as you're balancing out the body, emotions may be released. They're being avoided maybe in waking life. Do you ever see that? Yes, I do see that. Yes. And and if I sense, because we do a lot of um, visual diagnosis, so, uh, and, and, you know, reading the body beforehand. So I can tell almost as soon as the person comes in the room and sits down, if that's likely to be the case, I might even, not only obviously would I be very gentle, but I might even say, you know, hey, after this session, is there somebody at home who, you know, you might want to talk to later? Or, you know, do you have to go back to work straight afterwards? These types of things. And and I would talk about that because you're absolutely right especially I see it so often with the relatives of the people who are dying in the hospice where I work. They're holding it together. They're desperate to be there for the people they love who are who are dying. And they are so tense. They hold everything together. I think we have a sort of a common belief, which I personally don't subscribe to, which is that we should be strong and stalwart and not cry and not be upset um, at the bedside of somebody who's dying or somebody who's, you know, very upset about um, 
another life event that's caused them to be grieving. Um, and so, yes, they come and lie on my table or on my mat and their body responds to the touch, their their chi moves to the places, as we just talked about, which they have maybe been trying to cover up by holding their muscles tight. Um, and as those muscles and, and joints and other parts of the body relax, then the feelings which are in the tissues, they, they can come out. So... So yes, it's it can be a huge relief for people. You know, they 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 get up at the end of the session and say, "I really needed that cry, or I really needed to tell you how angry I was about this person leaving me, or I, re you know, what, or you know how these 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 many many facets of grief, and then they can bring themselves back together again into to where they want to be in order to go back out and and support the the family or or friends who are dying or who are grieving. So, yeah, I do see that. I really do. That's beautiful. And, you know, it's it's nice that you have the awareness for that. And I'm guessing you teach that because you're also not only doing what you're doing, but you're also holding space for someone to shed their feelings and to talk about that and just to have that, that you know, the, that support in that front. So I think that's amazing. I'm curious because you, you said, you were sitting with your father as he died uh, in a hospice. Did you ever, did he ever ask you to do siatsu on him while he was in there? Not while he was in the hospice. He was already very far along the line by the time he went into the hospice and mum was his primary carer. And um, he still had this terrible psoriasis, which he'd had, oh, for, you know, tens and tens of years, this, this skin condition. And in fact, it got worse. Like I might have thought in advance that it would get better, but it didn't. It got worse. And so she massaged him. It was one of the most moving things. I can hardly ever remember it without feeling like I'm going to cry. Just watching her, because he was five stone by the time he was in the hospice. So he was terribly thin and emaciated. And she massaged him with this care. Um so no, I didn't touch him. I mean, I held his hand, you know, and touched, you know, just 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 gentle sort of one-off touching. But before he went into the hospice, I gave him a treatment. Um, and that was the first time he'd ever let me give him shiatsu. And it was, well, from my point of view, I felt really honored that he let me do that because it really gave me an insight into him you know the sense that i have when i'm giving shiatsu is um is very deep i get a real a really really strong sense of the person on physical mental emotional and spiritual levels but i i don't know what i don't know whether it opened up quite a lot for him it was quite difficult if it's your own daughter i think and i wish that i had somehow introduced him to shiatsu before he got sick it was a really short time like he got diagnosed in the may and he was dead in by was well he's just the anniversary of his death was just last week so it was a really quick process and it would have been great if i could have introduced him to somebody who wasn't a family member who might have been able to massage him um but as i say mum did and it was uh was very moving i'm glad you had he gave you the opportunity to do that, even though I said it's it's different, but it's still a memory that, you know, as you, you, you speak of it, that you hold dear is to be able to work on someone you love, you know, like that's, 
like that's a, a great honor to be able to do especially you know i'm guessing men tend to uh <laughs> hold out longer than women um and so it, especially like your father so um, i'm happy that you're able to to have that moment and how much it helped you know like i don't know but for that memory for him to allow that to go down after all these years i think that's a beautiful moment that he could give you Yes, it was. And I'm really grateful to this day, even though it was such a long time ago. It was it was towards the beginning of his diagnosis and he was really suffering. It was esophageal cancer. So he wasn't he was quite quickly unable to to eat anything solid. And but he was resisting um, various suggestions that people had made. And it was after the after the shiatsu that he um, seemed to sort of soften and sort of allow people to help him more and and to give him different types of um, things that would you know that he could get down to give him some nutrition. So yeah, it would be lovely to think that that maybe maybe that touch helped. I know when I work teaching mothers um, to give shiatsu to their newborn babies if they're not thriving, you know, if they're not feeding um, well, that they, that it works really, really well. It really um, stimulates the baby's sense of, of wanting to feed and wanting and, and of being able to receive um, nurture. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it helped. It would, it would be lovely to think that it did. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, the other thing you mentioned was about your miscarriages. And so we're in October now, and it is the International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, which I'm really excited for uh, in the sense of just being able to raise awareness on something that a lot of people ignore and they forget about. And so could you talk a little about uh, your miscarriages and how how you handled those and if you had support? Yes, I had... Um... I already had one daughter um, and she um, was two uh, when I first, when I got pregnant again and um, I had had no problems getting pregnant um, or, or during the pregnancy with, with her. And so I was overjoyed and went rushing around everywhere saying, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant again. You know, it's so exciting. Um, and um, yeah, I had, um, well, I didn't know at the time that that it was connected, but I had a sort of accident um, around about six weeks pregnant um, and um, a huge heavy wooden door slammed against me. It practically knocked me out and I was terribly upset. I was terribly um, shocked. And um, who, who knows whether that's what happened. But later that day, I went to pick up my daughter from the childminder and I remember crying on the doorstep and saying oh what happens if it's hurt the baby and it was a good few weeks later a, a good a, quite a lot later that I went for my routine scan at the hospital and they said that the baby had died and they said they thought it had died at about six weeks and when I looked up in my diary that was the day that I'd had the accident um, and so I'd been carrying a dead baby around with me um, inside me for a number of weeks and I was that really upset me terribly um I thought that I would know if that had been the case and I I either hadn't known or I hadn't let myself realize that and of course as well as 
miscarrying, I then had to tell everybody because everybody knew that I was pregnant. So the good bit about it was that suddenly I discovered that so many women around me, including my own mum, had also had miscarriages and I didn't know that. So you're you're right. I mean, I think people still don't readily talk about it. Um, and that was a huge support to know that other women had miscarried themselves, that they'd some of them gone on and had children afterwards, that they had survived themselves because um, even though I hadn't given, wasn't as if I'd given birth to a dead baby, um, had a stillbirth, but at the same time, I was just devastated. I was so, so upset and, and sad. And I, I remember standing in my kitchen and just sort of wailing and dropping to my knees and, you know, feeling that the world would end and knowing that I had my, my daughter already, but, you know, just, just sort of, I felt like I was part of um, of a, a whole womanhood through the ages of women that had lost their babies that had that had uh, that experience of of having an empty belly where there where there should be a live baby and so I had the support that was around me. I then got support from my shiatsu friends, um, which was one woman came all the way from Dundee and gave me a treatment as soon as she heard. I didn't she didn't charge me or anything, just, you know, just sort of supported me that way. Yeah, I had a lot of support. It's one of those griefs where you don't have anything to show for it. But I think, you know, quite a lot of people if they haven't been through it or if they don't understand, think, well, you know, the baby was really tiny, like lots of people abort babies at that time. You know, was it really like quite so serious? But of course, for the women who suffer it, I know it's not always the case. Some women don't feel it so keenly. But um, but for me, it was a really, really very, very serious grief. And um, I waited a year before I started to before I tried to get pregnant again because of that because I knew I needed to let that grief process really start to work its way through. And then I had two more miscarriages after that. Um, but I was very lucky because I, when I thought I'd had my fourth miscarriage, I had my body did the same thing in as much as it started to bleed. But in fact, yeah, I don't know whether you, knew, whether you want to hear the story of it or not. But anyway, I was very lucky that um, I got support from my mom and and uh, and it turned out that my my daughter, my second daughter, was still alive inside me. Some people suggested that maybe I'd had twins and that maybe one of the baby, the twins had died. And in fact, my, my daughter said something that suggested that she felt that when she was ever so tiny. But um, anyway, I was very lucky that I did. Eventually, four years later, I did manage to have a second child. Wow. Uh, well, thank you so much. I think you coming on here and sharing that story is, is so great and, and I hope it helped and I know it helps uh, people in the future because it's one of those things like you just don't hear about it enough and I I don't know enough uh, stories like that but they're real the real thing that happened to like women in our communities and I think and you telling it so beautifully and eloquently like in the simplicity of it and also the trauma and, and the, 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 the horror of like when you did feel the bump with the, the wooden door and then the kind of like thinking and going through those traumas, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people have gone through that. And I'm so glad you got the support uh, in your community 
that you needed at that time. Um, isn't that special? Like just to know that like, okay, yes, I have this um, common kind of bond where my, my fellow humans, my sisters can pick me up during this time. And, and even in your, the Shiatsu community, someone uh, with a, a beautiful heart was able to recognize that and to give it legitimacy and not say that, well, you know, as a, dismiss it as uh you know just a, a regular loss or anything like that which people tend to do in, in a lot of situations you're so right yeah. and and the fact i mean nowadays you, you probably know that the 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 normal way is for women not to well for 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 people who are having a baby not to say now until they're 12 weeks on until the baby's um in the in the uterus is 12 weeks old before they announce the pregnancy and in a way, I think that, that that's sad because if I hadn't have announced it to everybody, not knowing, of course, what had happened, uh, what would happen, I wouldn't have got a lot of the support that I had. Mm. And I, so I've always been quite grateful for that. I mean, it, there was a time when I thought, oh, I shouldn't have told anybody. Oh, now I have to tell everybody what's happened. But, but I was so lucky that the response I got you know, was one of, as you say, of sisterhood rather than, um, and in fact, there were some men as well um, who who understood. And and I think I would have found that it much harder to have told people if I hadn't already, if they didn't already know that I was pregnant and that therefore, yeah. so in that respect, um, you know, I would say to women, don't feel you have to keep it a secret, you know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That isn't that isn't that the interesting thing about how that developed and and uh, you know what kind of society's rules and stigmas and norms that that uh, unofficial rule kind of developed, right? And I'm sure it was with um, good intentions, but uh, what it also does is it actually keeps people from sharing in the pain, which is uh, important and helpful if you have a good, healthy community around you. Right. If you have like supportive people around you who are helpful, then you know what? It's, that's okay. You know, and, and I'm glad you feel that way. And, and, you know, you can look back on that, not with guilt that like, oh, well, I should have, you know, waited or whatever, whatever. But you've obviously had time to think about this and transform your thoughts and, and your, the way you think about it. And, and now you, I, I'm really happy to hear what you say now about it, to be honest. Thank you. Yeah, I never, it's interesting because, yeah, I, I heard that too. And I didn't really know how frequent it is. I think it's like one in four women, right? Or maybe even more. Um, I think it's I think it's one in three. Not to, to, to say to all women, you have a third likelihood that your baby will die. It's not that. It's just that it is very common that people do have miscarriages. And a lot of the time, women don't necessarily know that they've had one you know they they say that it could be a, a missed period or something like that but yes it's it's much more common than than you would think given the amount of talk there is about it in society in general yeah and that surprised me so like i i did a study on you know prenatal loss with grief dreams and i started asking you know people in my family and it's amazing how many had and I had no idea and like, it's for me that that breaks my heart because, you know, like I would love to have supported them through that. And um, as you said, right, like if you don't share it, then a lot of times you don't share that you have had the miscarriage either. So that's a, I never really thought until you sort of said the, the benefits of sharing that you are carrying, because if it is a miscarriage, then you can actually have more support than if not. So 
uh, you got me something to think about and and why people you know why did that come to in the sense of to not share all those sort of different things you don't normally talk about you're just like you just don't do it right <laughs> that's basically yeah. what it is right oh it's 12 weeks i'll share but you know why like so where'd that come from so that's a, a really great insight that i'm taking today that i never thought about prior so you know thank you for that and, so, and, and and it's complicated because when you first discover that you're pregnant, if 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 that's what you want, if you want to become pregnant, or or even if you didn't know you wanted it, but it but you realise you are very happy about it, then then by not telling people until twelve weeks, you also don't share that joy. And yeah. even if the baby does die, you know, even if you do miscarry, then you know you it doesn't take away the joy that you felt. Um, and as you know, a lot of a lot of people believe that not every baby, if you think on a on a soul level, not every ba baby needs to be carried to term. Now that's a, a very very difficult concept if you're the one that's lost your baby. But some people find that very reassuring that that some babies only need to incarnate within the womb for a short period of time, and that the joy that you feel when you're first pregnant could still be shared with everybody even if it then results in in the you know in a in a sort of termination a natural termination and certainly if you if it happens repeatedly or if you you know if there was any sense that you were to blame or that you had done something that caused it then you have the option you know the opportunity as you said yourself of being supported by your family so overall i would really support women in being more more open about about it and and therefore more open to the possibility of getting support both for the joy of it and and the hardships and and the grief that might might follow yeah absolutely and and also to a large degree i think um the more important thing is to create that um openness amongst everybody in the community to be aware of these things and to be not judgmental and not to you know uh to label something and to see if someone shares with you if someone is is being honest with you about their miscarriage and their experience then you know treat it with the respect that you would treat any loss and pain and, and look at that person in the eyes and you know tell them how you feel and, and i think that's the main thing is that like look if we can create that climate and create that knowledge and information around the people around us what a lovely environment that would be we could just not only share in the joys but also help with the the pains and the losses and share in those moments as well absolutely beautiful yeah i'm curious just throughout your yet you your multiple losses did you ever dream of your father or any of the unborn children after they died i did dream often about my father in all sorts of varying degrees my relationship with him is extremely mixed he you know he had a, a lot of ongoing issues alcohol smoking and 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 other other difficulties so um the you know the varied stages of of grief that that almost always involve some anger or some depression or some um denial or some what you know all those different stages um were quite exacerbated in in the case of my father so to start with because i was living away from him i used to dream that he was a long, long, long way away, and I couldn't, I couldn't, he couldn't hear me. I would, you know, I would call and he couldn't hear me. And I, yes, I sort of understood that as being something to do with 
the fact that I lived so far away, I had to travel so far to see him when he was um, ill um, each time. And, um, and it, you know, when I would think it meant that after he died, when I would automatically think of telling him something, it, it seemed to take me longer to get used to him having been dead because I was used to being at a distance from him anyway. I don't know if that makes sense. So my first dreams were of him being miles away, being, you know, me calling and him not being able to hear me, not being able to to get him to to hear me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so like your rationale for it makes sense, you know, like because it would take a while. I would think if you're living with someone and they die, it's more easy to understand that they're dead than, let's say, someone who lived in a different town, a different country. And you, you speak to, you don't speak to them every day per se, but for the mind to then realize they're actually dead, it would just take, I think, longer for that process. And so, like you said, your dreams could be that. That's interesting. Yeah. And, mm. you know, just to jump on that, like the strained, strained relationship analogy, mm-hmm. of just being far, you know, emotionally far from the person, right? From your father. Not yes. having that, that open line of communication and, and not having that, um, been a spot where you wanted it to be in in living and so you never i i would assume you never uh got to really communicate those thoughts clearly while he was alive no that's right when i i mean it was one of the it was it was that very uncomfortable thing that you you have if you have a if you live you know if you have a close um family member who's who drinks a lot because when he was when he'd been drinking, then he wanted to open up a conversation about emotions that often used to be when he would tell us, tell me that he loved me, but then he wouldn't remember the conversation we'd had uh, the next day sort of thing. So, so no, it was, it was, it was, um, you're quite right. It was, it was awkward. And, uh, and therefore there was a distance. I did, I did speak to him, you know, that final night that I stayed with him, you know, I said some things out loud because I think it's commonly a agreed that that we don't know for sure if people who are dying can hear us or not even if they appear to be asleep or or in a sort of coma so I did say some of those things because I needed to say them beforehand yeah and did your dreams change since then has that been the only kind of theme that you've had with your father no, over the years I've had a range of of dreams about him. So there were there are sometimes happy dreams where I can tell him he was an architect, and I I something that I often found myself wishing when was when I saw a a beautiful building or when I really enjoyed the design of a building, wanting to be able to share that with him. And so I have had some dreams where I have been able to do that and woken up feeling very, this was a while ago, you know, feeling that um, sense of, um, that sort of nice sense that you feel when you've shared something with somebody who really understands. So I did have good, those good dreams. Um, but I think I think because my memories are varied of when he was alive, and I will sometimes have conversations with my siblings or or other people about the different aspects of my relationship with him. Perhaps that's why my dreams sort of are different. I, I'm I'm not sure. So so I, so I also have angry dreams where I'm um, shouting or crying you know, sad dreams. So, 
quite a wide range, actually. Yeah, it's a complex relationship. And how we process that is, you said it takes a lifetime. And, you know, our bodies are doing what it needs to do. And hopefully we can learn, as you, as you sort of see with the, the points of touch, to balance the body. The mind's also trying to balance itself with all that traumas and all the past experiences and missed opportunities and, you know, longings for differences in what is and what was. It's trying to balance all that. And dreams are a great way of showcasing what it's trying to work on. And, you know, a lot of people will have, you know, that do have, you know, different relationships will have negative and positive dreams of their loved one. And that really represents you have positive moments and there's a lot of negative moments that uh, that you have experienced. And like, how do you work through that in your life? It's very difficult. And there's no like one answer for that. And it's just that you have to keep, it's like practice. You keep practicing and trying to work with that, those, those memories, those thoughts, how you see them, how to see yourself. And yeah, so I'm glad you had some positive ones though. Because you said like that's something that you've always longed for, and I'm guessing in those dreams he wasn't uh, intoxicated, and so like that in itself would be a beautiful moment uh, in time. And like when my my dad was also uh, really enjoyed the alcohol as a way to cope, and when I had my first dream of him, you know, like seeing him happy, it was it wasn't based on a memory because I'd never seen him like that in that light before. And so it's it's amazing how that can change your perception of the person. And your relationship with the person, depending on your spiritual belief. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's a process you're working through. And with anything, any kind of loss, we're constantly working through it. And there's constantly moments that will trigger us. And that's the beauty of these dreams. It's trying to help us. I, I sort of see it as a guide to try to help us work through some of these things that we just don't know. It's like you know, when you touch the body, you're like, oh, it's self-awareness, right, of the body. But then like these dreams, it's like self-awareness of the mind and things that you're pro trying to process unconsciously that are coming to the surface um, for you to sort of take another look at and say, hey, is there something here that I still need to look at, even though it may be uncomfortable, but can I, I move the needle a little bit further in working through this? Yeah, sure. I have a daily meditation practice and 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 a, a number of other sort of techniques and and exercises that I use with myself and and when the ones which I find useful that I've practiced on myself then I sometimes use them with clients as well and so I work I work on that relationship exactly what you're talking about on a on a regular basis because um you know if I if I call up if I imagine, if I open to the possibility of of um, of spirit, in, you know, in in Chinese medicine, um, there is a, a very a very sort of um, prosaic, sort of everyday sense of of our ancestors being with us and around us. And so, yeah, he's around a lot. <laughs> and um, and <clears throat> so, yes, and I think perhaps that you know, as, as you say, dreams, I, I, you know, totally make sense what you're saying, this sense of the mind trying to, to make sense and to, to calibrate these, these different experiences. And then there's waking life. And then there's this in between when you're, when you're in a meditation or some form of um, guided um, situation. Yeah. Where there, where there's a, a sense of constantly bringing the mind and the body together to try to to make sense of stuff and to make peace with things. So yeah, I would, 
what you're saying really makes sense. I think it's such an apt analogy in in terms of uh, massage because it's like, and you'll be familiar with this. Is sometimes there's pains in your bodies that you you it's good to kind of explore. Obviously, with with keeping awareness of it, but if you let those things if you let those things build untouched, if you leave them alone and let them build up, that pain begins to become more and more and more and more demanding more and more attention of you and taking away from all the other aspects of what your body can do. And I think that's the the key component there is not to be too afraid of, of those negative dreams that maybe pop up, maybe, you know, understand that there is learning here. There is insights that can be taken from it with degree. There's not every night and sometimes you don't want them. Sometimes you're just not going to be wanting to get involved and not want, don't want the insights. But if you can build up that courage to kind of, if you do have that moment where you can look at it and can look at it in, from a controlled perspective and, and with your emotions being in, in where they need to be, it's phenomenal. And I think that can be some great work in it. And, and one quick question I have uh, for you, since you have this belief of the afterlife and that your, your father's around you, do you see your father as who he used to be or has your relationship with him changed in a new way and how you see him? Um, that's a brilliant question. I think, um, I think it's changed because the me that engages with him, like if I have a conversation in inverted commas with him now, it's me, you know, age 57. Um, not the age that I was when he when he was still alive. And I have a sense that he has been through stuff as well. That That's the sense I get. I don't get the sense that he's the same person. Um, I don't know, maybe sounds ridiculous, but the sort of argument that we have, sort of at the moment anyway, is that I guess is, is one to do with forgiveness and to do with acknowledgement, the way that I hope I am with the people around me is that if I hear them tell me that I have done something that has hurt them, then I want to to do exactly what you just talked about just now. I want to be able to face that. I want to be able to really hear what they say and to really face that. And and for for what for whatever reason, the sense I have of my father is that he still doesn't really face the, some of the things that he did, but he does want a relationship with me in in the way that we have it now and so i still feel i'm holding out against that so whether that's to do with me not forgiving whether it's to do with me not having been able to express my feelings to him when he was alive i don't really know but but i agree with you that um that on, that it's it's good to have these dreams it's good to to be able to move through because each time I have a new dream, I wake up with a new awareness and new understanding a little bit, exactly what you said, the needle just moving that little bit further forwards. And then, because I know when I work with my clients, when they bring their dreams to me, their grief dreams to me, I spend time listening, but then I say, let's go to the body now. You're here because I'm a body worker. So I've really heard that. I know that this is very much with you, this grief dream that you've had. Now let's do some body work um, and see if we can find a way of integrating what's happened into the body. So that's what I try to do myself. Just, just, um, But it's just a slow process. Um, these primary relationships, I think, between our parents and ourselves when they haven't been as uh, 
as perfect as you might have wanted them to be. Just take time. <laughs> We're both laughing because it's so true. We're both <laughs> laughing because uh, I think it's working. I think the drug is working. <laughs> whatever, whatever you're doing, you're in it, right? Mm. And I'm, uh, I'm curious too, because you mentioned that you know he's he's not there yet in the sense of forgiving or understanding what he's he's done. Does that play a role in how how you see him? Like, I know there's all different forms of forgiveness. I'm just curious if, like, do you need him to acknowledge the issues or the like what he's done to to give forgiveness? Is that part of um, how you see that, or are they separate? Two separate things. I think there are two separate things because I don't feel. Like I, I know enough now about his background to understand why he was the way that he was, or at least to get some insight into that. So, you know, there's a big bit of me that, that is much wiser. That's not, I suppose that's not his child that understands and that sort of goes, you know, Hey, I know that we all do the best we can. That's all we can do with what we're what we're given, what we were born with, what what happened to us um, in our lives, whatever. So, so on that level, you know, I have an understanding. But then there's the other level when I see the results, the ongoing results of the things that happened with him that are still causing living people such pain and difficulty, then of course other emotions come up in me. So I don't know, what do I want from him? Yes, I think for some reason, yes, I want him to acknowledge that it's that it's not that easy to forgive somebody when you're being reminded of it every day, what the results of that thing is. Yeah, I see that in, in my life too, because it said like, I had a lot of issues with my father and as you said like before too it's like understanding their pain understanding how they grew up really helped me into not taking it so personally but then you're still living with the outcome of what they um what they trained you to be in a way the environment they raised you in and that caused you to have certain type of neuroses certain type of experiences that you're continually trying to undo in a way and to to live with and to even love because that's part of who you are to a certain extent. And it takes time to change those, but they're always, I think, be a part of you in some way. Maybe they won't have strong as strong of a pull, but there's still always going to be those, those voices within. And so, yeah, like that's why I was kind of asked because I still have that also. It's very interesting and complex question um, as we sort of work through this all, because it's so much easier when you're out of it all. Right. Mm -hmm. And you look back and say, yeah, I forgive him because you're, you're, you know, you're beautiful inside, right? You have that hope and you've changed a lot of the stuff you didn't want to change. But when you're still working through it, it's very difficult to then look back and say, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it almost feels like a rejection of self in a lot of ways, because you understand that that is your father, you know, that you are, you come from that genetics, you know, you come from that history, lineage, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, there's, tendencies that you see in your life you know as much as you try to distance yourself you, you've seen i'm talking about myself to be honest <laughs> there's things that like you know as much as i try to distance myself there's some things that we share in similar similarities there's things that like are there from from you know just being uh, growing up in that home or whatnot having that person as a parent 
So I totally understand what you're going through. I think it it there it feels like sometimes uh, a betrayal in a lot of ways, but it's complicated. Let's just leave it at that. But <laughs> but what the beautiful thing is, you're in it, and I think that's you know you're there. You're you're willing to open up yourself up and investigate. You have the courage to go into those dark spots and then try to uh, look at all. You don't have to solve everything in one night, right? You know, you got to give yourself a little bit of uh, grace and and um, patience and say that you know this i'm i'm doing the process the best that i can absolutely and i mean it's a bit of a a familiar thing that you hear people in my profession say but it, it is genuinely true that i learn so much about myself and other people and relationships as as the years go on yeah i recognize myself in him i recognize things that you know, I understand as I get older, I understand more about what I think he might have been going through that might have caused what he did. And um, and that gives me insight into me now as I'm alive. So I'm I can't be um, I can't be sorry about that. That's that's really, really valuable. So it's it's yeah, just as you say, it's just very multi-layered and complicated and just an ongoing thing, which I know is just, you know, will be it'll be a relationship that I come back to through my whole life um i just hope i haven't passed too much of it on to my daughters but that's another story <laughs> hey what do you say you're doing the best you can and you're doing you know, what you know and it changes as we get older and that's the beauty of you know living a longer life is you have more opportunity to change and to pass on that that wisdom to those behind us in all the different ways and then they'll have their own challenges, you know, just being human has its own challenges and there's no perfect environment I know of that someone's been raised in. So it's, it's just part of like the human condition. And it's amazing when we can have the parents or people around us that can provide us the wisdom to help us understand what we're going through. Because like for me, like I didn't know any, like I didn't have anyone telling me anything. So it was a real challenge to get started. But if you can have people right away that understand and like you and to, to support them through you say undoing some stuff or just relearning to try and figure out who they truly are that's right that's the most you can give and the more wiser and loving you can become to yourself and to others the more they can sort of see that within themselves and but this is i guess i'd like to say this is the game we play is uh you know you're not in a you're always going to come out with some sort of neurosis of some sort from the environment you're raised in and it's like can you can you find your way through it and to sort of be be something new and, and something more in in your eyes and so hey I, I i have high hopes for a lot of people in this world and i have high hopes for you and and your children too Thank and you. in that in that front so uh, i appreciate you being so open and talking about this stuff because you say like a lot of if if me and sean are dealing with this i can only imagine uh, what kind of listeners are dealing with their own issues um, when it comes to the environments they were raised in and forgiveness and even miscarriage. So yeah, just want to sort of thank you for, for coming on and sharing that quickly. I just want to ask you about your book because that's recently released. So what was your, what was your motivation in actually putting this book out? Well, I was director of, of my Shiatsu school when I was going through um, the whole uh, stuff with my dad. And I had a number of really huge learning experiences which made me realize that that this was uh, that grief and um, managing um, the threat of 
life of of um, serious illness. All um, all of these topics were things that I was not only meeting regularly in my own life, but therefore in the lives of my clients, and that my students must be given the opportunity to to at least start to look at um, how we what our own beliefs are and how we work with people while they were training. So that was how it first began. I started a whole unit um, with them, which wasn't outside of the guidelines, which um, our national association gave us. I mean, it, I mean, they fitted within them, but it wasn't a, a topic that was, it still isn't a topic that is on the curriculum. So I added that in and um, taught for that for about 10 years, 10, 10 years worth of students before before I briefly, I hit the menopause, had a bit of a crisis, eventually gave myself permission to take a sabbatical and went um, went abroad, went to Spain for three months just to take a break and started walking pilgrimage. And while I was walking, I had the idea of writing about the that um, unit that I'd been teaching the students for the journal, for the our Shiatsu Society journal, which I did. And that resulted in a school invited me to teach in their school down in London and that resulted in publishers noticing that I'd done that and contacting me and asking me if I'd write a book about it. So so that's very quickly the sort of background to it and I was of course very excited at the opportunity. I'd been wanting to write a book for a long time and uh, being asked to write a book by publishers I, I, dis- I discovered was quite unusual. Usually you have to sell your book them. So uh, yeah, I set to and and did that. Very lucky. Uh, congratulations. First book, that is a, a, a huge thing. And the book again is uh, Working with Death and Loss in Shiatsu Practice, A Guide for Holistic Body Work in Palliative Care. I'm curious, is this just for practitioners or would anyone could utilize this? Well, um, the publishers insisted that it was for practitioners which is why it's got that title and um but i had originally hoped it would be for a broader audience than that and so there are huge sections of the book which are much broader there's there's a, a whole whole discussion about um integrating complementary therapy in um in allopathic medicine, you know, in hospitals, in GP surgeries, in in hospices, there's a whole section um that's appropriate to people who might want, might I or either already have relatives who are unwell and be looking for something which is more than just a drug therapy that we know that the medical practice are offering. So it talks about this is what complementary therapy is. This is what it can offer you. This is what it can offer the person who's dying or who is grieving. And there are whole sections on how to be with somebody when they're grieving or not to be, how to listen about boundaries, about um, preparing for your own death. So there's a sort of a, a little section about legal things. So it's a very, very broad book, actually. So there's really, there's there's one chapter on theory, which is specifically for, for shiatsu and acupuncturists and for other masters who who have got more of an academic approach but that's just one chapter out of 10 there is um one practical 
one of meditations um, and movement exercises and breathing exercises and so on, which is appropriate. You know, anybody could use those. Um, and in between, as I say, there's there's this very wide range. You know, if you didn't even know what palliative care is or what end of life care is, because it's different in the States and in uh, in the UK and in Australia. So I cover all of those countries. All the English speaking countries are covered in the book. And there's lots of lovely stories about um, different cultures and how they approach death and different traditions going back in the past and even some stories like folk tales where death appears as a character. So it's actually quite a broad book. And I've got a blog which which sort of gives people an idea of all the different topics which are included in the book and, um, and why it might be of, of interest to more than just shiatsu practitioners. Okay, that's great. And as our last question, we'd like to ask, if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, um, what would that dream look like? Yeah, I thought about this when I when I read what you sent me. The dreams which I, the recurring dreams that I've had, which I th- which since I miscarried, are about neglecting the babies or the baby. So in the dream, I'm always I'm somewhere other than the baby, and I realise that I left the baby on its own, or that I didn't feed it, or that I didn't. Um, um, that I locked it in somewhere by mistake, or there's always a there's a whole variety of different scenarios. So I I think that because of that, the dream I would like to have would be in some way that something happened in the dream which reassured me that I did everything I could, that it wasn't that I it wasn't my neglect or my you know something that I did wrong that uh, that caused the babies to die. I think that's probably probably the dream that I would like to have. So there's a lot of ways you could take this. So would you want the babies to tell you or would you want maybe your father to tell you or how would you want to be notified of that? I don't think it's, oh, my father to tell me about the babies. Oh, well, yeah. I don't know. That was after, <laughs> it was after <laughs> that's very interesting. <laughs> it was after he died that I had the miscarriage. Um, actually, no, it wasn't. Gosh, I haven't even, sorry. You've asked me such a question. I'm having to think. <laughs> I don't really mind who it is or how it how it happens. I I I just think that because I thought about it a lot before I I came to speak to you because of reading, you know, your great website and your different listening to the different podcasts and reading, you know, your work, your valuable work, um, Doctor Black about it. I just, I, I think probably somehow or other, I'm probably still looking for some reassurance that, as I say, that um, that it wasn't my negligence that caused the baby's death. But yeah, I guess it could be my dad. That might be a nice way of healing our relationship. <laughs> wow. I like it. <laughs> yeah. like, why not, right? <laughs> why not? So two, two birds with one stone. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> So no, that's uh, I think that's a, a beautiful dream, and you're right. But it's a process with anything, and you know, once you have even that thought, because of what happened with the first miscarriage, um, it crept in, and it's amazing how often those negative thoughts can creep into us, even though we may not be thinking about them. Uh, so hopefully, one day, you know, those can subside, and you can actually have even a dream of of playing with them or or something to know that you know that bond that you had with them is still ongoing. 
And I think that's like one of the big things I love about these dreams is that even with the, the prenatal loss dreams is people still have these bonds with the, the children. And, you know, that's what, you know, you, you missed out on is that play and with the child. And, and now it's like finding the new meaning afterwards and the dreams aren't helping <laughs> to, to really uh, formulate that. So hopefully, you know, as, as you work through all this, um, you can have one of those positive dreams and hopefully tonight's the night. <laughs> well, I looked through my diaries to see, and I, I found one dream about my second daughter. So not, not about one of the babies that, that um, didn't get born. Um, and, and that dream actually had an I actually found the baby, I actually found her, and it turned out that somebody else had been looking after her. So that oh. that was a nice and I think oh. that was maybe connected. That was a that was a you know quite connected, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a very beautiful dream. Wow. So, yeah, thank you. That's pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty amazing and you know, you have that in your memory now as as a, a thought that you can go back to in terms of that that beauty of it, the positiveness of that dream uh moving forward. What wait, wait. Did you only remember that because you look back in the diary? Yes. Huh. It's interesting what we remember and what we don't. Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's strange because because those dreams of of forgetting the babies and so on are they happen so much that I I've never forgotten them. But when it when it when I started trying to remember when the last one was, I realized that I haven't had that sort of dream for quite a while. And so, yes, I looked back just to see whether I was remembering right. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes memory plays tricks on us. And I and so I found that dream. And I think it was because it was about my my daughter, who's now 23, that perhaps, the twin, I, yeah, perhaps the... I hadn't connected that dream with the babies, if you see what yeah. I mean. But it's now, a little bit different for you, right? Well, I yes, but now that I now that we're talking about it, and yeah. now that I'm, you know, did this research before I came on here, um, I think probably it was connected, and maybe that's why I don't have that the bad dreams anymore. That's interesting. Well, that's beautiful. That's mm. beautiful. I'm, I mean, hey, any work that can be done or that caused by us is great. <laughs> so thank you. Well, I'm glad you did your research on yourself. That's great. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And that's again, like I said, it, it it puts a different view, perspective on obviously your journey, uh, your daughter's life, and moving forward, and any dreams that you get. And like you said, you didn't get any negative ones after that, which is uh, obviously beautiful. All right, uh, Tamsin, it's been wonderful. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, you know, you you've got a beautiful spirit about you. You're very honest and and courageous individual, and you you've got a beautiful practice that you're doing and, and you know, really nice to hear about this book that's coming out. Do a lot for the to promoting the subject, uh, different types of losses. And thank you for telling about your own loss, your own miscarriage, and, and being open and honest about that. And, and hopefully people who are listening can resonate with that. I'm sure they, they do. I'm sure they're listening and, and really can hear a bit about themselves in your story, uh, which is phenomenal. Can you just let us know what your blog is and uh, so we can share that with the listeners? I will. Thank you very much. And I... And there is um the i was just thinking the the organization um i think which would help some of your listeners find a shiatsu practitioner if they wanted to is the aobta um so shall i send you details about that it's the the national association 
I do. Yeah. Do you call it? Yeah. National? Yeah, for sure. For we, and yeah. you send it to us. And when we post the, the show notes to the podcast, we can include those as well. Just, uh, just no, that's great. Because I presume you have listeners from all over, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all over. They love cool. to hear me shout them out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and uh, I think that's phenomenal because there, again, there's different shiatsu organizations. And if, if they need the help and if they want to go and, and get that service done, then they can do so in a, with a, someone who's reputable and registered. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to to say these things and to to learn about the work that you do and to to chat with you it's, it was amazing excellent and what was the the blog that, that you had for the book just so we can uh so my so my blog is shiatsu 690 so s h i a t s u 690.com okay excellent and are there any other uh platforms you're on Yes, I sent you all my social media things in the bio. I think they should all be at the bottom there. So I'm on, yeah, lots of them. Instagram, okay. Twitter. Oh, I, I just Facebook. don't have it. Oh, I, okay, perfect. Yeah, I just don't have it in front of me. Okay, we'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. Do, do you want me to say them out loud or are you? Or are you... Well, are they all Tamsin Granger? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, <laughs> um, Instagram is Granger Tamsin. <laughs> um, oh. But yes. Yeah, pretty much there. Excellent. There. So anybody who's looking for you can find you. Just look yeah, for Yeah, if you put Tamsin Granger, Granger into, into Google, then it brings up um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I don't know if it brings up Pinterest, but my Pinterest account is is sort of focused a little bit. There is there is a lot of shiatsu and death and loss in there, but there's also a lot. It's also that one's called Walking Without a Donkey, which is the name of my travel blog. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny. Um, <laughs> excellent thank you so much Tamsin and again thank uh, you. please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic uh, we would like to thank Shelby Forsythia and Ashtar Avatar for supporting us supporting the podcast and what we do and providing uh, that for us so thank you so much appreciate it if you have Facebook you can join the Grief Dreams group you can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.